of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Game of Thrones, The Rise of David. In this series, we look at how God removed Saul from the throne and took David, a simple shepherd boy, and made him the king of Israel. This week, we're going to be continuing our series in the Game of Thrones, but we're going to do something a little different. Rather than going through the historical books on David's life, we're going to take a week to look at a psalm, Psalm 23, because uh, as I'll mention in a few minutes, you can't study King David without looking at the psalms that he wrote. And so today we're going to look at Psalm 23, the shepherd singer. Uh, I'll be using the New International Version as always. All the verses will be up on the screen. I will this morning, uh, particularly at one point, really talk a little bit about Hebrew stuff um, to help us understand what God is speaking to us. So Psalm 23 encourage you to read along with me now from God's holy word. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A few years ago, um, when I first was reading the book series, The Lord of the Rings, um, in the, at the end of The Fellowship of the Ring, the first part of that, there's this epic battle scene, and one of the main characters, Boromir, dies in this battle. And immediately afterwards, several of the warriors, uh, Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, sit down and begin to recite poetry to one another. Now, having been a Marine, this struck me as a little bit unusual, because I thought, I... I don't remember in five years in the Marine Corps ever reciting poetry to another Marine. And I suspect that if I had tried to do something like that, it probably would not have ended very well. And so I was a little, thought, well, this is a little bit strange. And then I started reflecting on it a little bit more, and I realized that J.R.R. Tolkien himself was actually a veteran of World War I, spent several years in the trenches there, clearly actually understood being a warrior better than I did, and furthermore, I began to think uh, of the great biblical warrior king, David, who is also the greatest poet in all of Scripture. And so I thought, maybe this is not quite as strange as I had first thought about. And actually, I began on a quest to try and understand poetry better and started spending more time doing it. Part of that has been my love of the book of Psalms and doing it. And we really see that David, who, as I said last week, when we look at Goliath, the most famous story about David is him being a warrior. Um, but David was also Israel's singer of songs. In 2 Samuel 23.1, at the end of the books of Samuel, which we're going through right now, we read this. These are the last words of David. 
The last thing Samuel wants to understand about David is this. The oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. So notice he goes back and all that language, uh, David, son of Jesse, that's how we first met him, uh, the man anointed This goes back to when we first met him there in 1 Samuel 16, and then it tells us he is Israel's singer of songs. And so many of these psalms are, uh, many of these songs that he wrote are captured for us in the book of Psalms. And so today we're going to go through these, uh, one of these, and we're going to take Psalm 23 to look at it. And our reason for doing this is really kind of twofold. Number one, because it's David's most famous psalm. And number two, it deals with, in fact, what we've been seeing. We've seen David as the shepherd king, David as the shepherd warrior. Now we're going to see David as the shepherd singer as he's dealing with the theme of the Lord as a shepherd. And the Lord is really the king in this psalm. And we'll also see that the Lord is the one who delivers us from our enemies. So he's really kind of a shepherd warrior king in this psalm, just as David has been. So it's really kind of the perfect one for us to look at. And besides that, I really like Psalm 23. So we're going to take a time now to dive in. So let's look at the shepherd's song. Psalm 23, this is some poetry, so I want to help us to be able to read it a little bit well and understand what's going on. This psalm gives us two metaphors for a king in the ancient Near East. It begins in verse 1 with the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And verses 1 to 4 extend this metaphor of what a shepherd does for a flock. And then in verse 5, it suddenly shifts a little bit, and it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And there are some who try to keep the imagery there of a shepherd, but it seems like he's really shifting the metaphor to that of a host. In verses 5 and 6, we're no longer sheep cared for by a shepherd, but rather we are guests who are being cared for uh, by a host. And these two metaphors, in both of them, they're speaking of provision and protection for those who are being cared for. And both of them are ultimately realities or or metaphors for a king in the ancient Near East. Kings in the ancient Near East, not only in Israel, but even in other countries, were oftentimes referred to as shepherds. They were shepherds who cared for their people, and they were also hosts who cared for the people of the subjects. They, they took care of them and made sure that they were cared for. And actually, sometimes they literally provided food for the people and did all of that. So David is going to take this as a metaphor and build it to help us understand who, uh, who our shepherd king is. And in here, he tells us very clearly that our shepherd king is not David himself, It is not the king of Israel, but rather it is Yahweh. Notice in verses 1 and 6, David tells us, right at the beginning we read, the Lord is my shepherd. This is the divine name, Yahweh, is my shepherd. And then at the end of this little poem, he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord, Yahweh, forever and ever. So it's actually the very first word in the psalm and the next to the last part of the psalm, the word forever and ever is actually a couple of words, but uh, are the word Yahweh. And this is what is known uh, in, in uh, poetic terms as an inclusio. In other words, you start with something and you end with something. It's the beginning and the end. It's the bookends 
of the poem, as it were, and that usually tells you this is what's really, really important in this psalm. And it's a method of David saying, before we get down to all the different ways he does it, David says, my life begins with the presence of Yahweh, and if you go all the way to the end of my life, it ends with the presence of Yahweh. I am surrounded by the presence of this shepherd warrior king who cares for me in all of the ways that I'm going to lay out and describe to you in this psalm. So this psalm is one that is meant to help us understand how God's loving presence, how God's care watches over every one of his people. He is the shepherd to them as a flock. He is a host for them as a guest. He is our shepherd warrior king, as it were, watching over us. So with that as kind of an introduction to a poem, so we can kind of understand that the central theme, we'll now dive in and look at all of the parts. He begins with the metaphor, the Lord is my shepherd. Notice in verse one, it's the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Now this idea of God being our shepherd is very apropos for David because of course when we first meet David, what is he doing? He's a shepherd. And so if you haven't noticed, it's very true for you, you're probably going to learn to relate to God in certain ways as of the, the experiences he brings you through in life. And this is true of David as well. And so who better to write a psalm regarding God being our shepherd than in fact one who was a shepherd. But it's not only that David did that. This is a very common metaphor in scripture. It's one of the most common ways that scripture refers to God. If you go all the way back long before David in the law, in Genesis chapter 48, verses 15 and 16, Jacob is going to be blessing Joseph and his sons. And he says this in Genesis 48, beginning at verse 15. He blessed Joseph and said, may the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walk, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, may he bless these boys. So notice when Jacob wants to describe how he has walked before God, and you remember Jacob has wandered, life has been tough, oftentimes because Jacob has made life tough on himself, but notice how he, he refers to his relationship with God. He says, God has been my shepherd for all of my days. In Isaiah chapter 40, so if we move from the law and we move to the prophets, because of course we're in the writings right now in Psalm 23, even in the prophets we see when God wants to refer to how he's going to restore the exiles, in Isaiah 40 he says this, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. There's an extended metaphor being done here of how Yahweh is a shepherd for his people. Even when the people have wandered and have been sent off into exile, Yahweh is still the shepherd who cares for them, who picks them up, who will restore them and bring them home. And of course, we could move to the New Testament, and we just saw this recently when we did the I Am series. Jesus stands up and says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And when we looked at that text, we saw all the rich imagery that Jesus is picking up and saying all of that that was spoken of Yahweh is true of me because I am. I am God in the flesh. And so this is a rich metaphor. It doesn't begin with David, but he's going to give one of the most concentrated reflections 
on what that means. So how, what, what do we learn regarding God here? Well, one of the things that's a little bit interesting in this is notice in verse 1 the personal nature of God's shepherding care. We read, the Lord is my shepherd. In most of those other verses that I just read, it's God shepherding the entire nation of Israel that's off in exile. Um, most of the time, the use of the metaphor of God as our shepherd is for us as an entire flock together. The Lord shepherds his people, all of his people, the universal church, or we might even say, you know, all of Bay Ridge Christian Church is the most dominant way that it's used in Scripture. But here, it reminds us that God's care is not only corporate. It's not just that God cares for the universal church or even that God cares for a local church like ours, but rather that God cares for each one of us individually. The Lord is my shepherd. He personally watches over me. And so although God does shepherd his whole flock, he also shepherds each and every one of us individually. So the things we're about to unpack and lay out, don't just think of them as being what God does for someone else or for some group as a whole, but this is what God does for each and every one of us. What does he do? Let's unpack this metaphor. First, we read about God's total care for us. Verse one, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. I shall, I shall lack no good thing is how the, the King James put it. This is the overarching truth that's gonna get unfolded throughout the rest of the psalm. The basis is if you have the Lord, if the Lord is your shepherd, if you can look up and say the Lord is my shepherd, David's telling us, then you lack nothing. You have no want. Before we even get to the specific things that God will supply, the most important truth is if you have God, you have everything. There is nothing else. It's not because God will grant you other things. It's because the most important thing, the reason for which you and I were made, the thing that our soul longs for and wants is nothing other than Yahweh himself. And so David says, if you have the Lord as your shepherd, it matters not whether you're rich or poor, whether you occupy a position of power or you're in exile off in slavery, what matters most is you have Yahweh and Yahweh has you. And if you have that, if that is true of you, you have no want. The good shepherd is your greatest need. And furthermore, because he is a good shepherd, he goes even beyond that to meet other needs for us. And so notice all of the ways that this works out. When David begins by saying, I have no wants, here's how the Lord himself meets my needs. We're told first he provides for our basic needs, food and water. When David says, I have no want, he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures, or it's literally pastures of grass. He leads me beside quiet waters. So he gives us grass and water to care for us. But notice it's not just, you know, it refers to there as green pastures because that's kind of what that Hebrew phrase, even though it says pastures of grass, it means that this is the kind of pasture you and I need. It's not dry and rotten. It's good grass for us. And secondly, notice he, he gives us quiet waters because if you are a sheep, can you drink from a raging river? No. Sheep are rather helpless characters. 
which is why God chooses that metaphor for you and I. Other animals, maybe, you know, if you're a hippo, then you can get into a raging river and it really makes no difference, okay? If you're a sheep, you've got to have quiet waters. You've got to have still waters. And we are told God knows who we are and he provides for us exactly what we want. And notice here, the, the word lie down, he, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. They both have a connotation of gentle leading to provide rest. Both of the words that are used there kind of have an overarching thing that it's, it's not just that, you know, God, again, doesn't drive us there. He gently leads us there. And the purpose of the grass and the water, notice it's quiet and he lets us lie down in the grass. It's both to say, God is not only feeding you, he's not only giving you drink, he's not only caring for you, he's doing this in a way that he wants you to have rest. Okay, now, this is a theme I've been on, and I'm gonna get on a little bit of a hobby horse here, which I don't generally do. This is one of the most important things we need to grasp in our culture today. You, you live in a culture in which there is no rest. And in fact, we live in a culture that if you are taking rest, you feel guilty. And you know you do. Think about how often somebody asks how you're doing and your response is, I'm busy, man. I'm busy. Because if we're busy, we're justifying who we are. But let me tell you, you don't have to justify who you are. You're his sheep. And it's not a sign of a good shepherd that if you ask the sheep and they say, I'm just exhausted, man. This guy is just pushing me 24-7. That's not a good shepherd. Our shepherd gives us rest. And it's good. It's a good sign that we're being well cared for when we take time to say, I'm just going to lie down here. I'm going to take it easy, and I'm going to rest. Now, that's harder at certain times, but let me say, because I'm always concerned about young moms here, if you're a young mom and you have a bunch of children running around, I understand that you're saying, yeah, rest. You know, this is the 47th diaper I've changed today, and I got three kids screaming, and one of them's got jelly in their hair. I get that there are times in life where it's more difficult, but I want you to understand God wants you to find rest. And do not give into our culture and feel guilty for taking it running and being harried and busy all the time is not the sign of us really being engaged for God. It's a sign actually we're giving into the world because God created for six days and then he rested. And he did that as a pattern for you and I. He wasn't tired. God doesn't get tired. But he wanted us to understand it is appropriate to rest after we've labored. And actually, as believers, I might point out, if you notice, under the law, you work six days and you get a day of rest, but when does the resurrection happen? On day one, because you and I are given rest, and then we even work out of that. That's God's grace. He wants you to have rest. So I'll get off my hobby horse. Back to the text. Um, secondly, he continues on with this and says he gives us the rest of restoration. Notice in verse 3, we're told, he restores my soul. So this is continuing this idea of rest, lying down in the green pastures and next to these still waters. Uh, and it's continuing that he restores our soul. And this has got the sense that when my soul is harried and worn down, God will restore my soul. However, 
the word for restore here that, that is translated restore usually in Hebrew is translated repent or return. Okay, that's what the word usually is translated to mean. And I think he's saying, okay, there is rest and God is giving you rest, but part of how God does that for you and me is he causes us to repent. He causes us to return to himself. Our shepherd leads us to return from our wandering so that we can find true rest from the restless agitation of sin and rebellion. One of the things, we believe that sin somehow is going to work to our good, but here's one of the things sin does. It makes us restless wanderers, okay? We were in a garden home, and as a result of sin, we are sent out as exiles, and remember we're told Cain wandered restlessly across the face of the earth, and that's what we tend to do. And as sheep, this is one of the things sheep do, they wander into places they shouldn't get, Okay, it is part of our nature. We didn't have sheep when I was a kid, but we did have cattle. And I remember one day we came over. It was the middle of the summer. There was grass everywhere. And we had a stupid cow that had a chain on its neck. We'd bought it and it had a chain and we usually put tags in their ears, but we left the chain on this cow's neck. Now in the middle of the summer, there's grass almost knee deep around. This cow was trying to eat nasty old hay through a hole in the barn and got the chain stuck on a tree branch and hung itself. Okay? That is a metaphor for you and me. Okay? Knee deep and good grass, and we're wanting to eat nasty old stuff through a hole in a barn somewhere and get ourselves in trouble. Okay? But our good God comes, and he restores us by turning us and saying, you don't want to go there. You don't need to do that. You need to come back to what I am providing for you. And so part of the rest that we are given is a rest of restoration and repentance and return. And so again, don't listen to our culture because our culture tells you, hey, when you're going to find freedom is when you are off doing whatever it is you want to do. No, freedom is found in doing what we were made to do, how God has created us. That's where freedom is found. And so when God turns us and causes us to repent and comes back, we find rest for our souls. Thirdly, we're told he guides us in paths of righteousness. So he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Notice how in the poem, every new line kind of picks up the previous line a little bit, and then it's going to change it a little bit. So as he said, he kind of causes us to return, to restore us. Now we're told he's guiding us in past. So it's continuing the idea of restoring us from sin because he causes us to walk on safe, secure paths. And notice they're paths of righteousness. He guides us in paths of righteousness. The path of sin may be tempting, but it is never safe. It is never secure because that's where the wolf lies in wait for you and me. There's always wolves off. But our problem is we inevitably want to wander off, okay? We, we get where we don't need to go. That's what sheep do. But God is guiding us in well-worn paths that carry us to safe places, okay? And the safe places are in paths of righteousness. And notice, furthermore, he does this for his namesake. Now, why does David bring this up? 
because clearly we benefit from it. We're, it's, it's to our good when we walk in paths of righteousness, but ultimately it's for the, the sake of the name of God because when the people of God don't walk in righteousness, what does that do to the reputation of God in the surrounding world and culture? See, God told Israel, my name is blasphemed among the nations because of the way you have behaved. Because you have not walked in my nature, in my character, in my righteousness, now my name is blasphemed among the nations because of this. Last night I happened to watch the, just the beginning clip out of this show and they were debating, it's kind of a comedy historical debate show, and they were debating the greatest fall from grace in history. And one of them was, there were six possible choices, and one of them was Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, and they were knocked off the list first because one of the guys said, well, it's not like it's a big fall from grace if preachers fall because that happens so often. Yes, yes. So we were off the list before Nixon and stuff like that because they said, well, after all, this happens all the time. And I just winced. Because this really, you know, this is what people think when I tell them what I do for a living. Yes, I'm a charlatan. I'm out there doing this. That is a bad thing. But we oftentimes have deserved it because we've not walked in righteousness. And so God is turning us and getting us to walk in paths of righteousness, which are for the glory of his name, but they're also good for us. Fourth, he then tells us, that he is with us in the darkest, most dangerous places. He says he's guided us in paths of righteousness for his namesake, but then he tells us in verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Now here's a fact that is just tough, and we need to understand this. Our path in this fallen world includes dark scary valleys. But he is with us. There are some who want to tell you if you become a Christian, you won't have those valleys. That is untrue biblically. It's also untrue in life. It is simply not the way it is. It's not the way God guides and leads us. But the important truth that David wants to tell us is because, you know, when this again goes back to shepherding. You take them from certain mountains and then you go down through valleys. It's literally what shepherds have to do. As the seasons change, the sheep have to go through things and they don't like some of those places they have to go. But the important thing is the shepherd is with us. So notice David says, even in this place we need not fear because our shepherd is with us personally leading and caring for us. In other words, God does not say, hey, you're up here in the mountains, and you've got to get over this other place, so go through the valley, and I'll meet you on the other side. It's not what God does. God says, follow me, I will lead you through the valley. And notice here at this place, uh, this is what I love about poetry, when you start paying attention, you have to read it slowly. Notice at this place, in the deepest, darkest valley, David shifts from third person speaking about God to a second person speaking directly to God. Okay, The Lord is my shepherd, so I, I, I shall not want. He does this for me. He provides grass and water. He leads me. He guides me in paths of righteousness. But when I'm in the darkest valley, you are with me. 
okay? Because where you and I particularly need to know this, it's one thing, I, I, can, I, I feel sure of God's presence when I'm up in a pleasant green pasture and the quiet waters are there and there's no wolf around, and you're the same way. At that moment, we are sure God is with us, and we quote the verses and we sing glory, hallelujah. But when I walk into a dark valley and I can't see and I hear wolves howling, I can smell the danger all around me, and I cannot see the shepherd. Now, you may have never experienced this, but if you're in that moment, you'll start hearing things like, God's abandoned you. He's not with you. And, and I know you haven't done this, but occasionally I've started thinking, you know, that's right, I don't think God is with me. I start hearing that voice. You all understand what I'm talking about, okay? Job sits there and for seven days sins and nothing he says. And then suddenly it bursts forth. He says, God is not with me and the day of my birth should be cursed. Oh, it would have been better if I had never been born. God has abandoned me. And if we don't think we do that way, then we're not honest with ourselves. And so David says, at that moment, we need more than ever to know that God is with us. God's personal presence is emphasized in the valley of the shadow of death more than anywhere else in the psalm. He is there with us in that moment. And I want to encourage you, the, the central thing I want to get across today is if you are in a valley, if you feel like you are in the shadow, number one, this is not to say feel guilty because you feel like God is far away from you. That's not the point of the psalm. Here's what the point is though. Regardless of whether God feels close or far away, here is the fact. God is close by. He is with you. There is no valley where your shepherd has abandoned you. There is no valley where he's afraid. He does not look and see the flock surrounded by wolves and run away. He pulls up the sleeves, he pulls out the rod, and he is always there to protect and guide and lead and care for you and me. And I want to tell you, if you are in that moment, if you are in that place and you say, God, you have left me. God, you have forsaken me. God, you have fallen silent. I cannot hear. Do not listen to the voice of the enemy. Your God has not abandoned you. Your God has not left you. He has not forsaken you. He is there with you. And light is going to break into your valley, and you are going to see he has been there with you the whole time. Please hear God's word to you. You are never left alone. You are never abandoned. Notice David tells us God's rod and staff are there. The, the rod is used for protection. That's a weapon that's used to protect the flock. And so David says, even in the valley, when the wolves start coming out, I know that God is there and God has his rod and he will protect me with that rod. The staff, on the other hand, is used as a walking stick and it also guides the flock. The shepherd can stick it up and he guides us and tells us where to go. Even in the dark valley, God is there. So together, these two are a comfort. We're protected and guided even in the darkest, scariest, most confusing places in life. And friends, here's, 
Here's a bit of bad news. However old you are, there are dark valleys ahead. It's just the nature of life. A, a few years ago, I was young, and I thought, you know, once I get through this thing, and if I can just get all my kids grown up, and they're just all walking with Jesus, I'm not going to have any more dark, scary places. That was stupidity of the highest sort. Okay? I came to the depressing realization a few years ago, there is no time like that. Well, there is. It's called heaven. <laughs> okay? It's called heaven. That's when you're going to have that. In the meantime, there are dark, deep valleys. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim goes through all of these things. God is with him, and then he comes to the River Jordan, and he starts freaking out there. But Jesus is there to tell him, I will bring you through the river. I will walk with you. There is no place I will not be with you. And so that is our comfort. Our comfort, our hope, our security in life's darkest moments is God's presence with us. It is that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us us. When we face those moments, more than anything, we need to look for him. He is there with us. It is my privilege to walk with people in those moments, but all I'm really trying to do is to take your hand and to say, lift your face, lift your ears, listen, your God is with you. And if you can't see him, it's good to have a friend who will say, I see him, I hear him, he's here. Stay on the path. Listen, he's watching over you. Friend, that's what you need more than anything. And if you are in that dark place right now, that is my prayer above all else this morning. Not that you hear my voice, but you hear the voice of the shepherd. Not that you think the, the elders are gonna be with me or my friends are gonna be with me, but that you know that Jesus is with you no matter what you're walking through. That is a number one most important. And so David drives this home to us in this image of the valley of the shadow. Now at this point, David turns and shifts to the other metaphor, the Lord is our host. And he tells us the Lord is a, my gracious host holding a banquet. Notice in verse 23, verse five, suddenly, now and notice the juxtaposition. We're, we're in this scary moment in the valley and then all of a sudden, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, the scene shifts here from this valley of the shadow of death to a banquet hall. And I'll never forget a few years ago, I went up. Um, Scott had actually called me and a, a common friend of ours that was up at the, that goes to another church, Severn Covenant Church. They had had a daughter who had been born in Annapolis. The, the daughter was born early, and actually one of the attending nurses was a friend of theirs and came in and told them, the doctors have given up in the other room. Your daughter is going to die. If you don't get her up to Hopkins, it is over. So the, the, the woman having the child worked up at Hopkins, at Kennedy Krieger, so she called. They got medevaced up to Hopkins. Even Johns Hopkins said, this is beyond us. And so that night... The mom had gone to bed and was told, we're, we're intubating the baby. We have never intubated a child this small. We have no confidence this is going to work. You need to tell your baby goodbye because probably when we wake you up, we're going to be notifying you that the baby has died. So I went in there that morning expecting to be hugging them and holding them as they were crying. And I got there and they said, everything changed. When the, when the doctor came into the room to get me this morning, I drew in my deep breath. I thought this was it, and they said, no, we don't use the word miracle very often, 
But wow, all the numbers have improved. Everything is off the charts. We don't know what has happened, but your baby is in a vastly different place than last night. And then while we sat there, they walked in. So they're still in tears over this. And they walked in and they said, yeah, we found out you work here at Johns Hopkins, so you get special meals. We're going to serve you either steak or lobster on China. What would you like? And they looked at me and said, I was in the valley of the shadow of death, and now I'm eating off of China at a table. I have never forgotten that. That is Psalm 23, friends. In the valley of the shadow of death, and in the next scene, God has brought us to a banqueting table. He is caring for us. He is watching over us and keeping us. And so notice here, there is still the personal presence of God. Even though we're coming out of the dark place now, it's still you prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. David is still speaking very personally to God because God is our gracious host and he is spreading out a feast for us. And notice the interesting thing is you do this in the presence of my enemies. The enemies are still there. The enemies are still raging against us. But this is the privilege of those who seek and find the personal presence of God, even in the midst of trial and suffering. If you're in the valley and you hold on and you say, God, I can't hear you, but I know you speak. God, I cannot see you, but I know you are with me. God, I am being besieged by doubt, but I trust your covenant love. The personal joy we have in that is God says, and I spread a table out before you. Right here in the presence of your enemies, they are wanting to eat you, but I am feeding you, and they can do nothing but gnash their teeth and watch. Now, can you imagine what this is like for David as he stands in the presence of Goliath, knowing in the face of this overwhelming foe, God is going to deliver me from your hand. God is going to care for me. And what you mean for my destruction, God is going to work for my good. What is meant to be my death is actually going to become my salvation. What is meant to be the end of everything is actually the beginning of God bringing me to the throne of Israel. That is what our God does, and it's what he tells us here in this psalm. And so we feast while our enemies rage. And notice the lavish nature of the banquet. He says he brings us in, and our head is anointed with oil, where it's poured over to. This was the, the sign. You remember Jesus complained to the one Pharisee and said, you were supposed to anoint my head with oil and wash my feet, and you didn't do it, but this woman's been doing it with her tears. This was a sign of being gracious. And secondly, he says, my cup overflows. This is not just that I got a little wine. You're pouring the wine in, and it's just dripping out all over the table because you have prepared a banquet for me. I thought I was forsaken. I thought I was in the valley. I thought life was over, and now I sit at the table, and there is so much food, so much oil anointing me, so much wine. Oh my God, look what you have done for me. This is what our God does for us. Our God is a lavish host, caring for our needs, filling us to overflowing with his blessings and his presence. Now, that would seem like, wow, this is great, we can stop there, but David doesn't stop there. There's one more thing, and this is, if you, this is really actually how the other thing that I've said is so important you're going to understand and, and lay hold of. So please pay attention. He tells us at that point in verse 6 that we are pursued and kept by covenant mercies 
now and forever. Psalm 23, 6 says, Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, he tells us here that God's goodness, we know this is true even if we're in the valley because of the goodness of God. And secondly, because of God's love. This is a Hebrew word, chesed, and that word means covenant love and covenant mercy. When we sang this morning, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. That's out of Psalm 136, where every other line is, his love endures forever. Some translations say his mercy endures forever. Some say his covenant faithfulness endures forever. Because the word chesed means love and mercy, covenant faithfulness, that God is with you. He will never forsake you, not because of you, but because of himself. And that is good news because you're a sheep and I'm a sheep and you wander. I know because I have to keep tracking some of you down. Okay. But here's the good news. You will never wander so much that God is going to say, that is it. I am tired. You are off in another ditch. There is another wolf. I'm letting you get chewed on for a while just to show you back. That is not the nature of our God. His covenant faithfulness comes after you and me no matter where we have wandered. Even when you're in the valley, and even when you have perhaps said, I think God has forsaken me, even when you are like Job, why does Job make it through to the end? Not because of his friends, because the only time they did well in the book was when they kept their mouth shut. When they opened their mouth, it all went downhill. And it's a contest between the two of them as who can say dumber things about God. No human being comes to Job's rescue. It is God comes to Job's rescue because that's the nature of our God. That's his chesed. He keeps us. He pursues us. He runs after us. His covenant mercies and his faithful love. And so it is God's covenant character that is in view. The shepherd and the host are faithful to us. Our covenant shepherd and host, furthermore, notice here, it says that he follows us. I'm going to critique this word. That's a bad translation. Okay, it's not that God follows you, it is that God pursues you. Follow is too weak a word. Now, why do I say this? The word, Hebrew word is radaf. Um, it's too tame and too anemic to call it follow. Here's why, I'm just gonna show you three other places in the Psalm where it's used and you tell me which would be better, follow or pursue. Psalm 31, 15. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. What what do enemies do when they're trying to track you down and kill you? Do they just wander around kind of following you? No, they pursue you. They are hot on your trail. Notice Psalm 143, verse 3. The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in darkness like those long dead. Notice the intensity of of the enemy coming after us. And finally, Psalm 109, verse 16. For he never thought of doing a kindness, but he hounded to death the poor and needy and brokenhearted. Here's an interesting thing. I looked up the other day, every time the Hebrew verb radaf is used in the Old Testament, the only place it is ever translated follow is Psalm 23, 6. Every other time it's pursue or persecute. It speaks of an intensity. Now, we did that because the King James translated it follow, and none of us can break away from that. 
not, not trying to bust their chops too hard, but, but follow is too anemic a word. If, if you are being pursued by enemies, they are hounding you, they are tracking you, they are on your trail. But here's the good news. That is what God is doing for you. He knows when you have wandered. He knows when you are lost. He knows when you have wandered into a den full of wolves and he is hot on your trail. There is nowhere you will go as the child of God that he will not pursue you. He has already pursued you in Christ to the depths of hell itself. And he has freed you and he has brought you out. You will never go beyond the pursuing love of God. Do not doubt that. Do not lose that. That is so critical for you and me. We sing a version of Psalm 23 where it uses the word pursuing, and I love it for that reason because it's grasped what is actually being told to us. God's covenant mercy, his love, and his blessings don't just follow us. They pursue us, they overtake us, and they keep us. You are safe. You are kept by the covenant love and mercy of God. And notice he tells us then, these blessings will be ours forever, now and in eternity. Surely goodness and love will pursue me all the days of my life. And then when I come to Jordan's riverbank, and it's not the valley of the shadow of death, it is death itself, and I go through death, what will happen? My eyes will close in death, and then they will awaken in life because I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All of the love, all of the care, all of the protection, all of the provision I experience now will only be multiplied, and it will be multiplied forever and ever. We can trust that we will experience God's favor forever, not because we are faithful, but because he is. Our covenant shepherd and host, our shepherd, warrior, king, will pursue us to rescue us, to restore us, to keep us, to bless us. Better, he will do it to you, to me, personally. It's what it means to be the sheep of God. Is that good news? Now, we're going to apply the word and come to the table. First question that's critical, can I say the Lord is my shepherd? This is essential. Okay, this is not the Lord is our shepherd. Part of the reason why it's so personal is this is a beautiful poem full of comfort. I hope if you are struggling, if you are in that dark place, this encourages you. But all of this is only true if God is my personal shepherd. It's not true if I say, well, the Lord is someone else's shepherd. Okay, is the Lord my shepherd? Have you looked to him? Have you experienced that? Do you know that he is your shepherd? If you don't know that, then I urge you today to look to him. This is what Jesus brings up in the New Testament. It says, I'm the gate for the sheep. Come through. You'll find pasture. You'll find care. But it only comes through Jesus, the gate. There is no other way. The conference I was just at, we were, it's called We Are Protestant. We were going over the Protestant Reformation, everything that happened there. But a big part of that was all of the Protestant things that we said, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way. It is only because of him. It's not who we are or what we do, but who he is and what he's done. Do you know that? If you don't, I urge you today, look to him. Secondly, 
as believers, if you do say, yes, I know the Lord is my shepherd, do I have confidence in my shepherd host? This is a psalm of confidence. It's an expression of faith. If you notice, there's a lot of dark psalms, okay? The most common type of psalm is, oh God, where are you? I'm in the valley, and despite the fact that I said you were always with me right now, I don't feel like you're with me. Okay, that's actually the most common psalm. But this is one of faith and confidence. And so it asks you and me, do we have confidence and faith that, that my shepherd will care for me? Do I know that? Do I believe that? Do I have confidence and faith that my shepherd is with me no matter what? Do I have confidence and faith that my shepherd will pursue me and keep me to eternity. This is absolutely essential. I have utter faith that I will be kept until that day. Not because I'm strong and mighty and I'm just the kind of guy that hangs on or any of that kind of stuff. I have that confidence because my shepherd is faithful. My shepherd will keep me. My shepherd says, you are in my hand and no one is strong enough to take you out of my hand. Do we believe that? I want to urge you, if you're in a dark place and you say, I'm struggling with that, then today, hear that voice. Let God stir up that comfort and that confidence for you. If you're not there, be honest and tell him that. Lord, I'm wanting to know that. I'm wanting to know you're with me, but Lord, my, my feet are skittling around because all I see and all I hear is the wolves. I'm not seeing you, my shepherd. Show yourself to me. But we need to walk in that confidence. And that leads us to the last thing, which is going to be coming to the table. At this table, we're reminded that we are cared for, we are fed, and we are kept by Jesus, our great shepherd. It's no surprise that who's the fulfillment of Psalm 23? Jesus. Jesus is the one that stands up and says, I am the good shepherd. I take care of my sheep. And he even defined, the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. I am so much with you in the valley of the shadow of death that if the only way for you to make it through that valley is for me to die, I'll die in your place that you might live. He has brought us into the fold of God he will never leave us. We're told this specifically in the New Testament. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He has anointed you and I, not with just oil on our head, but with the Holy Spirit upon us. He gives to us every covenant blessing. No matter what promise God has made, they are all yes in Christ, and they are yes to overflowing. And he feeds us, he brings us to his table of love. And so this morning, I want to encourage you, as always, it's appropriate. If you're sitting here and you say, I sinned this morning, I got angry at somebody and called curses of heaven down upon them, confess your sin. But I want the focus this morning to be the provision God makes for you at this table. If you are in a place and you say, I'm in a dark valley, I want you to come to the table this morning and I want you to eat and drink and be filled. I want you this morning to be renewed by the Holy Spirit and to receive encouragement. And I want you to know that the same God who has provided this table for you will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will care for you no matter what valley you may be in right now.
receive that, hear that, be fed and strengthened with that this morning. For what I receive from the Lord, I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. O oh, our shepherd, O oh, our host, this morning we come to you as your sheep. We come to you at your table. Father, I pray that you would feed each and every one of your lambs that are here. I pray you would care for them. And I pray, Father, more than anything, that they would know your pursuing covenant love is with them all the way into eternity. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. As you get the elements, they're going to be playing a song called His Forever. And so I want you to meditate on those words this morning. I'm giving you what I'd like you to meditate on. Listen to this and know that this is true for you. You gave yourself for us that we might become your people. As we hold this bread, represent your body that you took, we recognize that in that body, you did that which we could never do. You fully kept the law of God. You never wandered from the paths of righteousness. You fully obeyed the Father's every desire. And because of that, you have fulfilled righteousness for us. And so, Lord, we thank you for the gift of righteousness that is ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you pursued us and you did this for us even when we did not know we had the need. Thanks be to God for the body and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Take and eat. And Jesus, truly you are the friend of sinners, for you have shed your blood for us. Whereas we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you have allowed our sin to be imputed to you, that your righteousness might be imputed to us. You have shed your blood and died that we might live. And we are grateful that this cup is the cup of the new covenant, that you did not shed your blood once and offer us a, uh, a partial gift that if we would be faithful, you would be faithful to us. But no, you shed your blood once and for all. And because of your covenant mercies, we are forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future. Because of the depth of your covenant love, we will never be forsaken. 
And so, Lord, we lift up this cup of salvation and we say thanks be to God for the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood that has sealed the covenant that will keep us forever. Take and drink. Jesus, friend of sinners, I love to tell the story. Redeeming love has been my theme and will be when in glory. Not death, nor life, nor anything can ever separate me. Oh, love that will not let me go. Yes, I am his forever. Father, this morning we are so grateful that you are our shepherd. Lord, we freely confess as your sheep we are so prone to wander. Lord, so often I find myself in the midst of wolves because of things I chose to do to put myself there. But even in that moment, you pursue me and you keep me. And Father, there are times when we wander into places or even when we have followed you and the path becomes dark and we simply do not understand and our hearts are filled with doubt. Father, how good it is to know that even in that place, you are with us. Your rod and your staff are there to comfort us and to guide us and that you will never leave us or forsake us. Father, I pray for everyone here this morning. If there is anyone who is in that dark valley, Lord, I pray that this morning they have tasted grace at your table. Father, I pray that their soul has been restored and renewed and that your word has broken through their darkness and that they would know that you are with them. Father, I pray that your chesed, your covenant, faithful mercy and love would pursue every one of us this week, that you would keep us, that you would restore us, that you would fill us to overflowing with your blessings for your name's sake and for our good. I ask this in the name of Jesus, our good shepherd. Amen. Let's stand together, and we're going to conclude with the word of benediction out of Hebrews chapter 13. And I encourage you, as you hear these words, to receive the blessing of your God. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, May he encourage you and keep you and equip you with everything good for doing his will. May he work in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people say, amen. Go in the peace of the Lord in his covenant love. Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.